Most of you are probably aware that walking is really good for you. I know there's many medical professionals in our congregation, so I'm preaching to the choir here, but walking regularly can help you improve your blood pressure, lower your risk of a stroke. It helps in reducing body fat and body weight. It reduces your cholesterol. It could even lower your risk of death by up to 39% when compared with no leisure time physical activity, those who, who don't ascribe to that. It can also help you be more creative. One Stanford University study I found said that walking increases creative output by an average of 60%. Walking also has been shown to improve memory to prevent the deterioration of brain tissue as we age. Plus, psychologists who are studying how exercise helps to relieve anxiety and depression also suggest that just a 10-minute walk may be just as good as a 45-minute workout when it comes to relieving symptoms of anxiety and boosting mood. I bet all of you are going to try to go on a Sabbath afternoon walk today after hearing all this, even though it's really hot. Walking is really good for us. But in our modern society, um, we don't walk as much as we should. In fact, the average American walks about 5,100 steps a day, well shy of the 10,000 mark that our Fitbits or smartwatches tell us to try to, to get to each day. In fact, you are considered uh, sedentary if you are walking just under 5,000 steps a day. So that's about where we are as a country, almost sedentary. We aren't walking near as much as we should. And this fact really hit me the other day as I was... Um, seeing somebody in my neighborhood driving out of their driveway. And as they did, they, they paused next to their trash can because it was trash day, and they reached their hand out the window, grabbed their trash can, and then proceeded to back out their car of the driveway so that they could roll their can to the curb. I stood there and saw that and thought, wow, that is a really good idea. We don't walk near as much as we should, which is sad because walking is really good for us. Walking is especially good for us when it comes to our spiritual life. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 1, we find the Apostle Paul urging us to walk. If you have your Bibles and want to open to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the text will also be on the screen. I'm reading from the NIV, which says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, the NIV uses the word live there, but in the original, that word that gets translated as live is the verb to walk. And I think it's great that the NIV translates it as life here because this is a lifestyle that, that Paul is trying to get at. But that lifestyle is characterized by movement, by going somewhere, by walking uh, on the road that God has called us to go. I like the way Eugene Peterson renders it in his paraphrase, the message. He says, in light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to go out there and walk. Better yet, run. On the road God called you to travel, I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off. 
down some path that goes nowhere. We are urged by the Apostle Paul to walk. In fact, walking is one of the primary metaphors that Paul is going to use for the remainder of the book of Ephesians. We have this one reference here in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the calling which you have been called. But then I have a a slide that, that shows here some of the other references we will see as we keep reading Verse 17 of chapter 4, walk no longer as Gentiles walk. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, I want you to walk in love. And in verse 8 of chapter 5, walk as children of light. And then in verse 15 of chapter 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's pretty clear that walking is important for our spiritual life. And Paul is talking about walking because his focus is largely now on the ethics of Christian living, the ethics of this life in Christ. The first three chapters, you may have noticed that he was focusing a lot on praising God for how he has chosen us, how he has called us, how he has saved us by grace through faith, how he has given us power through his spirit to experience the extravagant dimensions of his love. But then as you transition into the last three chapters, it seems like Paul's focus is more heavily on how God's grace and love that he has given to us is supposed to change our behavior, change the way we live. We are to walk worthy of the calling he has given us, verse 1 says. And it isn't about calling in the sense of job or vocation. He is referring to God having called us to salvation, called us to life in him and when you accept his salvation when you accept his invitation to live in him it changes the way you walk and it also seems to be that the walking Paul is referring to in this section as um, Uncle Seth uh, described very well in our children's story today thank you Seth for that it seems to be referring to the body of Christ He seems to be describing how the church is supposed to walk worthy of God's calling. And he gives many instructions in verses 1 through 16 on how to be a walking church. And we are only going to have time to scratch the surface. I had told Seth that I was going to go through all 16 verses, but uh, the Lord had other plans. We're just going to focus on the first two. I couldn't get past just the first two, but I want to encourage you to read the rest of them. All of those uh, verses in, in, in that section, talking about how he gives grace to each one, how we speak truth and love, how we have different roles in the body of Christ. All those things help us to understand what it means to walk together as a church. But today we're just going to focus on the first two instructions he gives for how to walk. And it starts with walking with a certain kind of attitude. Verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble. Paul's attention goes first to the ego with this call for humility. I don't know if the Bennies are here today, but I saw Mike Benny wearing a shirt the other day that said, Lego my ego or something like that. Some of you younger kids may not get that play on words because I don't know if the Lego my ego commercials are still going on or not, but they were popular when I was a kid. 
made me obsess about asking my parents to get frozen Eggo waffles. It was really good marketing. Even though my mom would make really good homemade waffles, I had to have Eggo waffles because of Lego my Eggo, right? Lego my ego, his shirt said. And, and that message on that shirt really describes what we are to do as we start to walk in a way that is worthy of God's calling. We are to let go of our ego. Live in complete humility. That word that is translated as completely humble is actually talking about one's thinking. It means lowliness of mind as opposed to being arrogant or haughty. Thinking low was the attitude back then of slaves and was considered a negative trait among the ancient Greeks. But here Paul said, this is how you need to think. You need to have a lowliness of mind. You need to be completely humble. No ego. Didn't Jesus, after all, say in order to gain your life, you have to lose it? This is where Paul starts. This is where our walk as a member of the body of Christ begins. No ego, lowliness of mind. Then he continues on, gentleness, an important thing not to gloss over, a, a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, if you remember, Jesus really only described himself in, in just a few words. He said, I am, and it really is both the, the, the first two things that Paul talks about here, hum, humility and gentleness. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's really the only thing that, that Jesus himself, the only phrase he uses to describe himself, gentleness. Then it talks about patience, one of the defining characteristics of love in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, you will see that it says, this is what love does, this is what love does not do, but it only uses two words to define what love is. Love is kind, love is patient. Important virtues to keep in mind. But I want to draw your attention especially to that last phrase where he says, bearing with one another in love. Most commentators suggest that that phrase, bearing one another in love, really does not do justice to the tone of the original language there. And that a better way to render that in our thinking today, in our vernacular today, is putting up with each other. Where we have such love for someone that we are willing to endure their faults. That's what Paul is talking about. Even though we have been married for just 14 years, um, I, I think that my wife, Bimi, has earned a PhD in this kind of love because she has to put up with a lot when it comes to me. Like how I am constantly forgetting things. The other day she asked me to go to the grocery store and just get one thing. <laughs> you probably know where this is going. I was, I was glad to go. In fact, I, I was uh, trying to find a time where I could catch up on, on the podcast that I was wanting to listen to. I, I popped my earbuds in and said, sure, I'll go to the store, I'll pick that up for you. Started listening to my podcast, which wasn't anything profound. It was sports talk radio. You know, I could have done without it, but I got lost in my podcast. By the time I got to the store, I got distracted by everything else on the shelves, and I came home almost an hour later with bags of groceries and, of course, missing the one thing <laughs> she asked me to get. She's got to put up with a lot. Sometimes I mistake the floor in our bedroom for the laundry basket. <laughs> 
I don't know what it is. I don't know if any of the rest of you can, can relate to that, but there is something in my mind that it just feels right <laughs> to have the clothes on the floor. I mean, I, I tend to space out when I drive. It scares her to death. I finish the food off her plate before she's done with it. I, I pretend I'm listening when I'm watching, the TV, watching TV and I haven't heard a word she said. I could go on, but I know you've you got to get out at a, at a decent time today. Suffice to say, she's got to put up with a lot. I've got to put up with a few things, too. Like this morning, I had to turn this way like I do most mornings in order to get to my car because um, my wonderful wife somehow thinks that her little car needs two-thirds of the space <laughs> in the garage for it to be parked. So mine's all the way off to the side. We both put up with each other. But that's what you do when you love someone. Doesn't mean you don't communicate about your feelings or try to improve things, but we are called to endure each other's faults along the way, especially here the body of Christ. It's not easy to do, whether that's with your spouse or your friends, your coworkers, or especially here in the church. It can be hard to endure each other's faults. It can be hard not to dwell on each other's faults, right? Let alone put up with them. Do you know what always helps me when I struggle with that? I think about my own faults. The words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount come to mind. Don't obsess about the speck of dust in another person's eye while ignoring the beam in your own. I love how Max Lucado elaborates on this principle that Jesus gave in his book called How Happiness Happens. He says this, Jesus envisioned a fellow who has a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. It protrudes like Pinocchio's nose. Every time he turns around, people duck for cover. His wife refuses to sleep in the same bed with him for fear he'll roll over and knock her out. He can't play a round of golf. Every time he looks down at the ball, his stick sticks into the ground. But even though the beam is in his eye, it's never on his mind. He's naive regarding the stares of others. When they stare, he assumes they like his shirt. He doesn't see the log in his own eye, but he can't help but notice a man who stands across the street dabbing his eye with a tissue. With great self-confidence, the fellow with the extended redwood looks to the right and to the left, causing people in both directions to scatter, and then marches across the avenue and declares, you know, you ought to be more careful. Don't you know that if you get something in your eye, it can be harmful? Then he smugly turns and struts down the street. Cato concludes with these words, we have eagle eye vision when it comes to others, but can be blind as moles when we examine ourselves. Were we to be honest, brutally honest, don't we spend more time trying to fix others than we should? Don't we have more expertise on the faults of our friends than the faults of ourselves? I am certainly guilty of doing that myself. So I'm trying to adopt a new approach trying to adopt the approach that D.L. Moody had. Moody, as maybe many of you already know, was one of the most influential Christians of his generation. He led thousands of people to Christ and established many institutions of education and training, but despite his success, he had this reputation for being a humble man, unimpressed with himself and gracious 
towards others. And he was famous for saying this. Right now, I'm having so much trouble with D.L. Moody that I don't have time to find fault with the other fellow. That's how I want to live. As the body of Christ, we are called to walk worthy of our calling that God has given us. And how does that start? With complete humility, gentleness, patience, and putting up with each other in love. Then we go to the next example Paul gives. Verse 3. When we walk, we are to walk in unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, he says. Can't you just sense the, the priority, the, the, the magnitude uh, that Paul is giving here to unity? He says, make every effort. Every effort. That word in the, in the Greek that is translated as make every effort, it means to be zealous, to be eager. In other words, Paul's like, put all the energy you have into being unified together. When you think back to what Jesus prayed just before he was arrested, just before he was to go to the cross, you can understand why Paul would say, make every effort, be zealous for unity. I'll remind you of that prayer. John 17, verse 20, Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, he says, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The way in which the world will know Jesus, the way in which they will know that their heavenly Father loves them is if we are united as one. No wonder, Paul says, make every effort. When I think about making every effort, I think about when kids ask their parents for something that they really, really want. Like maybe it's a toy or, or maybe it's a new video game. For our kids, it's, it's usually dessert related. Those are, our kids have such a sweet tooth and, and they, will, they are relentless. They will offer to do anything, extra chores, eat more vegetables, give us back rubs. They will lay out this case about how good they have been in school and how kind they have been to their sibling. It's really hard to say no, <laughs> they, they make a good case. They make every effort. Or I think of, a, of an elite athlete training for a competition, the rigorous conditioning and strength training, the endless drills to fine-tune their skills, watching hours of film to strategize and get a leg up on the competition. Or I think of a musician rehearsing for the upcoming concert, playing to the click of a metronome to lock in the tempo and technique, marking out the dynamics all over the score to ensure the phrases are musically played, hours of repetition to commit the notes to memory, all that time and commitment and energy and sacrifice. Are we making that same effort to be one together? 
Now to be clear, we are never told that this unity is something we create, right? The text says we keep the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit provides it. This isn't something that we can manufacture through our own effort, which sort of gets rid of the excuse, we can't work beside so-and-so. Well, maybe you can't, but the Spirit within you can. To say otherwise is to say that the Holy Spirit cannot do what he longs to do. He provides the, the unity. Our job is to be eager for it, to be zealous for it, to prioritize it, make every effort to have him come do his work. And one surefire way to remain zealous for the unity of the Spirit, I think, is to keep in mind what Paul says next in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, there is one body one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have to remember what we have in common and more importantly, who we have in common. That's how we will be united. We're all part of the same body. We have the same Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us. We have the same hope that we are looking for. We were baptized the same way. We have the same Lord that we are serving. We have the same Heavenly Father. That's what brings us together. I don't know about you, but I feel like there is a trend that is getting stronger and stronger in our world today where people seem to be coming together more so over the things they disagree on rather than the things they agree on. You follow me? Does that make sense? Hey, maybe a way to illustrate that is a conversation I had with my neighbor the other day. He was telling me about a, a girl that he had met and they went out for their first date and I said, hey, how did it go? He said, well, it was okay. At first kind of started off slow, but then I discovered that we hated a lot of the same things and we really connected. <laughs> and I think that's indicative of the trend in our society. Our, our media seems to only fuel that fire. If somebody disagrees with the same things I disagree with, well then, hey, we can get along. We can work together. We cannot let that trend sneak into the church because the church is a place where we disagree on a lot of things. But the beauty of what the Spirit does is he is able to even unite people that may say, I actually agree with what you disagree with, right? Because we have one hope. We have one Heavenly Father. We have one baptism. We have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have one Spirit in all of us, even though we're different. That needs to be our focus what we have in common and who we have in common. And we'll come together as one. So family, I hope you have seen how walking is really good for you, both for your physical health, but especially for your spiritual health. So as we stroll through life and ministry together as the body of Christ, I want to invite you to join me in letting our steps be filled with humility, gentleness, patience, tolerant love, and unity.
Lord, that is our prayer today. Make us one. May that define the way we walk together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.